Here's what, to me, separates Robin Williams from every other comedian. There is no footage of Robin Williams phoning it in. No matter what stage he was on, he seemed to be immersing himself completely in the performance, and he seemed to love it totally. Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. That was John Mulaney inducting Robin Williams into the hall at the inaugural Netflix is a Joke Festival. It's an event to honor legends in the world of stand-up comedy, and there's no denying that Robin Williams fits that bill. The event is now streaming on Netflix, but we're here to uncover even more about those greats. I'm Cristela Alonzo, and I'm so excited to do this podcast series. We're doing a deep dive into the lives and careers of four comedy titans, George Carlin, Joan Rivers, Richard Pryor, and in this episode, Robin Williams. We have some amazing people joining me to talk about the genius of Robin Williams. You'll hear from people like Glenn Close, Ron Howard, Jay Leno, Rick Overton, two of Robin's children, Zach and Zelda Williams, and more. Let's dive in. We're recording this podcast in June 2022. That means we've been dealing with the pandemic for a while. These past few years have been hard, and they've brought a lot of attention to essential workers. By now, it's become a familiar list. Doctors and nurses, grocery store workers and food delivery drivers. Basically, the people who make sure we have everything we need to weather the COVID shitstorm. We can't thank those people enough. And as one of our guests recently suggested, it's not just food and medicine that gets us through tough times. I do think it has become important to our survival to be able to laugh. Glenn Close is a legendary actor. You might know her from Fatal Attraction, or more recently, Guardians of the Galaxy, or the other 800 films she's made. She talked with us about how comedy is something we all need, and that making people laugh is an act of service. But it's not easy to do. So I've always had huge respect for comics because it's an area where I feel highly insecure. To have that quickness of mind is not something that I think I have. I can learn lines and maybe under certain circumstances can riff, but it's not, it's not how I've developed as an actor. So I have huge kind of awe and respect for it. Close has met a lot of brilliant actors and comedians over her long career. And she said Robin Williams was something special. I think Robin was one of the great comics of the 20th century, for sure. Going into the 21st century, he, he had a mind like nothing I have ever experienced before or since. Robin Williams' comedy was lightning fast and wildly creative. He could jump from topic to topic, combining different types of styles and voices all at once. He's been called the Tasmanian devil of comedy. I'm not sure if it's a perfect description, but I can see it. Just listen to him walk through the audience and react to people's outfits at this comedy hour on HBO from 1988. I thank you for wearing this. It's wonderful. Look at this sweater. Look at this. Obviously, someone took some masculine and said, I'll knit. you. Thank you for wearing this. Some man went blind saying, fuck it, just get it out of the shop. Oh, 
Robin Williams loved to perform. And he didn't need a big stage or a fancy venue. If you were in the right place at the right time, you might have caught an impromptu Robin Williams performance out at a restaurant or even on the street. It was mainly out in public or at dinners or in a situation where something has gone awry. He would come up and step up to the plate and perform. That's Robin's son, Zach Williams. He spent a lot of time hanging out with his dad on set. And he says his dad would often break into many performances for the cast and crew. He was very excited about captivated audiences that needed to be entertained. But for Robin Williams, comedy wasn't just about entertainment. He often used his art to give back. Just like Glenn Close talked about, if you're having a tough time, Williams' comedy could help get you through it. And his son, Zach, echoed that idea. Humor is healing. And in dark times, we need to have humor to get through trauma, to understand how we can find potential lights at the end of those tunnels, right? And so I'd say that's the lens that I take when looking at comedy and the work of comedians is that they have the opportunity to be healers. One of the reasons Robin Williams' comedy was so joyful is because it was so unique. He didn't just stand on stage and tell jokes or do impressions. A Robin Williams set was this spellbinding flurry of energy and voices and characters. His movements and facial expressions alone were almost enough to transport an audience into another world. As John Mulaney said, Robin Williams never phoned it in. He put in so much effort to win over his audiences, and it worked. People love Robin Williams, and they they eat up his humor. Marina Zenovich directed an HBO documentary called Robin Williams, Come Inside My Mind. If ever there was a fascinating subject, um, it's Robin. Zenovich says the source of Williams' abounding creativity starts with his early childhood. He spent a lot of time alone. And I think he was in his head a lot. Williams grew up in a big house in the affluent suburbs of Detroit. He was raised as an only child, although he did learn he had half-siblings later on. He spent a lot of time by himself in the attic, playing with toy soldiers. And not just moving them around, but creating voices for them and dreaming up complicated plot lines and battles. His dad worked for the Ford Motor Company and was often on the road. And when he was at home... He wasn't the easiest guy to win over. Robert, or Rob as he was known, Robin's father, came from kind of hardy Midwestern stock. His dad, by most accounts, was somewhat distant and emotionally reserved. Dave Itzkoff writes about culture and comedy for the New York Times. He wrote a biography of Robin Williams called Robin. And he says one thing that Williams and his dad could bond over was late night TV. Particularly when Jonathan Winters would be on the Jack Parr show, uh, Rob would kind of go out of his way, make sure that they would stay up late at night to watch that together. And so that really became uh, a kind of unity for the father and the son. When you look at clips of what Williams and his dad were watching together, you can see how Winters might have inspired some of the comedy Williams did later on. Here's a scene of Jonathan Winters performing on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr in 1964. Parr gives him a stick to improvise with, and Winters runs with it, shifting in and out of voices and characters, 
who all find a different use for the stick. In a matter of seconds, you can hear him flip from tiger tamer to concert violinist. Send in those big cats. Uh, send in the smaller ones. I should like to play for you now an old tune that I played when I was in Vienna. It's called Und Steilwarzekühne nach Dinevaarne, which means along the river we go. <laughs> Itzkoff says Williams used humor to bond with both his parents. But his mother, Lori, was less reserved. She liked kind of dirty puns and jokes and limericks, and she had a favorite kind of physical bit that she taught Robin where she would take a rubber band and cut it in half and kind of ball it up and, and put it in her nose and then pretend to sneeze and have a long strand of rubber band hanging out of her nose. And so clearly that was a huge kind of influence on Robin. Growing up near Detroit, Robin Williams went to a fancy prep school, the kind of place with a dress code that required the students to wear blazers and ties and carry briefcases. Itzkoff says Robin excelled there and was popular with his fellow students. But before he graduated he would be uprooted and thrown into a very different part of the country. Then suddenly, right before he starts his senior year, his dad retires from Ford and moves the family out to the San Francisco Bay Area. And so Robin finishes his senior year of high school, you know, in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco, in 1969 at the sort of the height of the summer of love and the psychedelic era, you can imagine what kind of a high school he transferred into. And, you know, it was much hipper and looser and more relaxed. And that was really where he kind of learned how to cut loose himself. Robin went from being a conservative Midwestern kid in a jacket and tie to someone who was much more of a free spirit. One of the ways he cut loose was getting into acting. And Itzkoff says that created new tensions with his dad, Rob, who was a military veteran turned company man. So to have a son like Robin, who Rob certainly hoped would go into a kind of traditional white collar line of employment, like a, a lawyer or maybe even a diplomat, to have the child want to be a performer and an actor as, as Robin was for most of his life and desire to be uh, I mean, that's kind of a classic father-son conflict and, and certainly not what Rob expected for his child. Williams made it through his senior year of high school and chose to pursue acting at a nearby community college. Even then, his talent was clear. Some of his early performances got strong reviews in the local paper. And when he auditioned for one of the country's most prestigious acting conservatories, he got in. And Itzkoff says when Robin Williams showed up in New York City for his first days at Juilliard, his hippie California vibe made him stick out. Christopher Reeve remembers Robin arriving in this kind of like baggy Hawaiian shirt and open-toed sandals and hair spilling out of every crack and crevice. Christopher Reeve, who would later go on to play Superman, was Williams' roommate and best friend at Juilliard. The two would remain close for the rest of their lives. But back when they were starting out at the conservatory, they quickly found out the instructors weren't fucking around. 
the Juilliard program, certainly in the years that Robin attended, was very nuts and bolts and learning all of the fundamentals and learning to perform Shakespeare and learning to do acting with masks. The institution was hell-bent on turning out the best actors in the world. That meant the teachers could be brutal with their criticism and the students had to either learn to take it or leave. They really did not particularly care if an individual student made it through all four years of the program. They knew that some kids were going to come in and go all the way and others were going to drop out. And Robin ultimately was one of the dropouts who didn't go all the way. William's ambitions were expanding. He was still interested in acting, but he was also starting to look at comedy. And after he dropped out of Juilliard, he returned to the Bay Area where a stand-up revolution was underway. Comedians were putting on shows in all kinds of spaces, not just traditional clubs, but pretty much any room where they could pack in an audience. Church basements and storefronts and restaurants. And the style of it was fairly loose and liberal and improvisatory. And those were all things that not only suited Robin, but that he kind of helped to define at the time. Williams absorbed that loose improv style, and he threw himself into the scene. He started working as a bartender at a San Francisco venue and performing around the Bay Area. His buddy Rick Overton, a comedian and actor, told us about how the work Williams and his contemporaries were doing really broke the mold. The stand-up world traditionally was always, you know, you memorize that act and you perfect it and you hone it and you nail it down. And in perfect vaudeville tradition, you you reproduce that over and over again because it's surefire. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. And uh, then there's those, those other guys that just start playing with the audience and want new stimulus. Their brain just simply can't sit still for that long repeating things. Certain brains are not meant to do that. It's like you can't leave a border collie in your house all day. It'll just shred your sofa. It's not supposed to. <laughs> It's not a static pet, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> you can really hear what Rick's talking about when you listen to William's early stuff. Here's a clip from one of his shows in the 70s when that border collie energy is on full display. In just 10 minutes, he goes from doing an impression of a Soviet comedian impersonating a Japanese horror movie to racing around stage as a Shakespearean actor to becoming an evangelical preacher who steps off stage and starts trying to heal random audience members. Do you feel the need to be healed? I know you can walk without that chair. Are you ready, dear sister? We're gonna have a miracle here right in our very midst. Dear sister, give me your hand. I hope to God you're not a real cripple. By 1978, Williams had gotten married to his first wife, Valerie Velarde, and the couple moved to Los Angeles, where Williams performed at clubs like the Comedy Store. Even at that point, Williams was comfortable taking big risks, like doing entire sets pretending to be a Russian comic who only spoke broken English. Jay Leno was in all the same clubs at the time, and he remembers seeing Williams on stage and coming away with a pretty strong first impression. So for the first three or four days, I thought he was a guy from Russia. And I remember when he came to the improv, I go, I met this guy from Russia. He's, he's trying to be a comic. He's pretty good. His English isn't that great. You know, and then, of course, later I found out, oh, how stupid I was. It was just a character that he played. As Leno saw more of Williams' act, he came to admire him. 
He says a lesser comedian couldn't have pulled it off. Well, it was controlled chaos. If you believe that everything's okay as long as it's funny, then it, you can go along with it. Because there are people who could act like Robbie and just go, get the guy out of here, he's annoying, you know? But if you can do it and be funny, once you make them laugh, oh, now you got them, you know? So then it's like, oh, okay, this is okay, you know? You can really hear what Leno's talking about in this clip from an old performance Williams did at the Comedy Store. He was going on after his friend, Richard Pryor. I'd like to introduce to you a friend of mine who is a funny human being. Exceptionally. He's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. Partway through his set, Williams does something that pretty much only he could have made funny. He grabbed a hat off of somebody in the audience and let his imagination run wild. I'm wondering, oh, this hat is lovely. This is a very beautiful thing. I'll give it bear back. <gasps> Sorry about the scar. <laughs> oh, this is lovely. It's like when the Queen of England came to San Francisco. That was kind of redundant, but who knew? <laughs> she went, no, no, let's go now. No, no. She went to, they said she went to Trader Vic's one night. We read to see her drunk going, these are the jewels, no lottery. In 1977, Richard Pryor was already a huge star, and his trajectory was looking bright. As you might remember from our Richard Pryor episode, NBC had hired him to create his own sketch show. But before he started, he had a few demands about the cast. When we were casting the Richard Pryor show, and I was putting together the cast, I was talking about who to get, and he said, I want my friends from the comedy store. I said, I said, well, but, but can they act? And he said, I want my friends from the comedy store. Okay. That's the show's director, John Moffat. He told us that one of the friends Pryor would bring on was Robin Williams. The Richard Pryor show would mark one of his first TV appearances. In one sketch, Pryor and Williams face off as rival attorneys in a parody of To Kill a Mockingbird. Pryor plays a prosecutor trying to convict a young black man wrongly accused of a crime. And Williams is the defense attorney. And he makes an earnest appeal to get his client off. Now, members of the jury... I want you to look inside your rational minds right now, and I know for some of you that's going to be an impossible task. <laughs> but I want you to look inside there and bring back a verdict of not guilty. Williams made an impression on Moffat. Nearly 50 years later, he still has memories of what he was like around the set. He was somebody who was very serious and very quiet until he had an audience. It could be one or two people, whatever he thought was an audience all of a sudden he'd break into what we all know as Robin. But he was very serious when he wasn't like that. He was an amazing, an amazing talent. The Richard Pryor show only lasted four episodes, so it didn't turn Williams into a household name. But it wouldn't be long before a bigger opportunity on TV came his way. In 1978, the ABC hit sitcom Happy Days was in its fifth season. The show's ratings were dipping, and the writers turned to strange storylines that echoed recent hit movies to try to get more people to tune in. In one episode, for example, the writers cooked up this outrageous stunt inspired by Jaws. They made one of the show's main characters, the Fonz, jump over a great white shark on water skis. To this day, when a sitcom pulls a desperate, over-the-top plot twist, people still refer to it as jumping the shark. Later that season, the show's executive producer, Gary Marshall, saw how obsessed his son, 
and the rest of the country was with Star Wars. And he tasked the writers with introducing a space alien into what was otherwise a 1950s family sitcom. It was an episode that the network hated. And they almost never hated anything that Gary Marshall touched. They left Gary alone, but they were really ragging on him over this episode to the point where they just wanted him to shelve it. That's the director and actor Ron Howard. He played Richie Cunningham on Happy Days. His character was a straight-laced counterpart to Henry Winkler's cool greaser Fonzie. And in the episode he's talking about, an extraterrestrial being called Mork comes to Richie in a dream. So we'd read it one week. It had changed quite a bit, sharpened up a lot. The next week now, it's on deck. It's the one we're going to actually stage and do that Monday. But there's no one to play this character, uh, Mork, from Orc. The show reached out to Dom DeLuise and Jonathan Winters and couldn't get either of them on board. But time was money, and they had to keep the rest of production moving. So we just started blocking it with somebody else reading and filling in the lines. So... You know, Monday afternoon, no one. Tuesday was our first real serious rehearsal day. We showed up expecting to see the actor. No one. There's no one there. So Tuesday, we arrive. Henry and I look around. There's no Mork. The show was down to the wire. And finally, just days before taping, the casting director, Bobby Hoffman, had a breakthrough. All of a sudden, the door opens. You see a little light at the end of, of, of stage 19 there on the Paramount lot. And in comes Bobby Hoffman with his cap. He's beaming. He says, I got him. The door opens and in walks this guy. He's got suspenders. He's got a striped shirt, big head of hair. And, and he comes up very quietly and Bobby says, I just read him. He just, we just, we love him. Gary likes it. We just approved him. And uh, nobody's ever heard of him, you know. He says, hi, I'm Robin. And uh, he's very meek, very, very quiet. And we said, okay, all right, great. Well, he's got funny suspenders. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, we'll work with that. We'll, <laughs> that's work, a, with that. A we'll start, work with that. a start, I suppose. <laughs> Howard says Robin's first read-through was fine. But as soon as they started rehearsing on set, Something changed. All the nerves, whatever he felt, went away. And he started riffing. And he's flicking my slightly oversized my ears. He's messing up Fonzie's hair. He's, he's doing anything, anything and everything. You know, close enough to the story to kind of keep it going. Making sounds, sound effects. All of that Mork for Mork stuff started happening right there, spontaneously. And Henry and I looked at each other, and it was like a moment of revelation. It was like observing a lightning bolt, but it was not going to hurt us. It was only going to help us. It was a flash of absolute brilliance. I mean, it was a blast. And we did the show, and people laughed so hard in the stands. Can you just calm down? Calm down for one second. Relax, Earthling. I mean you no harm. Oh, sure. How am I supposed to know? What do you do? Do you just uh, use that to scare people with? No, it keeps rain off my head. As soon as the taping was over, the director, Jerry Paris, and the executive producer, Gary Marshall, realized they had something special on their hands. And by that Friday night, 
Jerry was telling me and telling all of us, Gary thinks it's a series, so does the network, and basically this is the pilot. If you recognize this theme song, then you already know that pilot became the spin-off series Mork and Mindy. It brought Robin Williams' character to Boulder, Colorado, where he studies the human species. And his earthling friend Mindy, played by Pam Dauber, agrees to keep his alien identity a secret. Here they are meeting in the first episode. Who are you? I am Mork from Ork. Nanu nanu. Ork? Yes. You see, Ork is a planet. You follow the Big Dipper till it comes to a dead end, then you hang it up. I'm up. Up, down, hard to tell out in hyperspace. Oh. Mork and Mindy was a runaway success. All of a sudden, young people across America were quoting Mork's alien lingo, greeting each other with nanu nanu and cursing with the word chasbat. The show turned Robin Williams into a star. He was filming Mork and Mindy by day and performing at comedy clubs and partying at night. And I mean really partying. Ron Howard was still shooting Happy Days, and he would occasionally cross paths with Williams on the Paramount lot. He was looking tired. He was looking tired by the end of that first season. I remember he stopped by the show one night when we were shooting just to kind of say hi for a minute. And I, I felt like he looked tired, but he was already committed to a movie as well. You might be expecting me to talk about Popeye here, which a lot of people think of as William's first movie. But film critic Ty Burr told us that's not exactly the case. Burr used to write for the Boston Globe, and he now has a substack called Ty Burr's Watchlist. And he said there's actually one other movie that came before Popeye. Can I do it till I need glasses? That's what it's called. The movie was something his managers didn't want him to do. He actually filmed it before he started on Mork and Mindy. It's a skit comedy. It's like a stupid, smutty, Skinamax skit comedy. And he was cut. He filmed two skits, and they were actually cut out of the finished film. Both those sketches are about 30 seconds. And in one of them, Williams plays a lawyer cross-examining a witness. Is it true, Mrs. Frisbee, that last summer you had sexual intercourse with a red-headed midget during a thunderstorm? while riding nude in the sidecar of a Kawasaki motorcycle, performing an unnatural act on a Polish plumbing contractor, going 60 miles an hour up and down the steps of the Washington Monument on the night of July 14th. Is that true, Mrs. Frisbee? Is that true? Could you repeat that date again, please? <laughs> Burr explained that the reason we can find those deleted scenes is because as soon as Williams got famous, they edited his sketches back into the movie and re-released it. I've seen it. It's terrible. It's actually a sequel to an even worse sex comedy, and it's very much a relic of its era. After that, Williams and his team got better at picking film projects. He was smart. He alternated silly comedies with more serious projects with, with you know, good directors. William's next movie was Popeye. It was written by Jules Pfeiffer. He recently spoke about writing the movie at a Popeye screening at Sag Harbor Cinema. And he explained to the moderator that Williams almost didn't get the role because the movie's producer, Robert Evans, originally had a different Popeye in mind. And Robin Williams, it's the first big role for Robin Williams. He was just a TV actor, right? The original Popeye that Evans wanted was... Dustin Hoffman. 
And when I wrote the original script, or the first draft of his script, it was for Dustin. But when Dustin Hoffman pulled out, the project almost died. And if the producer hadn't been watching primetime sitcoms, the movie might never have been made. Evans called me on the phone and said, have you seen Mork and Mindy? As soon as he said it, I knew that he was talking about Robin. And I felt duh stupid because it, the, I'd seen Mork and Mindy and, and loved Robert Williams in it. It never occurred to me that he would be a perfect Popeye, which he would be, and he was. The movie was intended for a mainstream audience and had a big-time director, Robert Altman, at the helm. It was also musical, with songs by Harry Nilsson. What am I? I'm Popeye, the sailor. And I yum what I yum what I yum and I yum what I yum and that's all that I yum because I yum what I yum. Uh, you got it? I think so, yeah. The making of Popeye was tough. The production ran out of money in the middle of shooting, but they still managed to release the movie to the public. Some critics didn't love the final product, but Popeye has its devoted fans. If you released Popeye now, it would blow people's minds. It's amazing. It really is. That's Rick Overton again. He's a comedian and actor who was friends with Robin Williams. It's a masterpiece, and I think it was maybe ahead of its time, or the audience wasn't there, wasn't ready for this really brilliant experimental piece being done by Robert Altman, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Williams shot Popeye during the final seasons of Mork and Mindy. His good friend from Juilliard, Christopher Reeve, had just become a Hollywood A-lister playing another comic character, Superman. And Williams' biographer, Dave Itzkoff, told us he thought Popeye would do the same for him. You know, when you look at the results of the film, it certainly didn't do that for Robin, but it has, the movie has such a good heart. So Popeye didn't turn Williams into a bona fide movie star, but it also didn't shut him out of the movie industry. He was able to go from that to his next film, The World According to Garp. The movie is based on a John Irving novel. Williams plays the main character, a man named T.S. Garp. And the film follows his journey to becoming a writer and explores his relationship with his one-of-a-kind feminist mother, played by Glenn Close. Close told us about her first impressions of her co-star. When I first met him, he was a wild man. Chris Reeve would pick him up. They both were very, very famous at the time. <laughs> and Chris would come and pick Robin up on a Friday when we were shooting, and they would go off, and Lord knows what they did. Close and Williams became friends during production, and she told us about how supportive he could be on set. I do remember vividly my first day on the film. I had only done stage up till then. Never had a body mic. Never, it was a scene where there's a long tracking shot and we had to stop several times along the track. And I, I just thought it was impossible. And way off behind a barrier was this screaming crowd, um, knowing that Robin was filming. I think it was somewhere in the East Village. So I was terrified and he was so wonderful. He sensed my terror. And he really was there for me. 
we got through it. And when you see that scene now, it ends up with us meeting Susie Kurtz, who's the hooker, and me asking her to go have a cup of coffee. Pardon me. My name is Jenny Fields. Are you a prostitute? What's it to you? Hello. My name is Garb. My mother and I were just passing Your by. Your mother? I'll be glad to pay you. Oh, yes. You see, my mother... Uh-uh. Says, I don't go for no kinky stuff. You want any of that? You go over to 8th Avenue. Oh, no, no, no. She just wants to talk well, what's to your you. regular charge for what you do? You know, ask a few questions. Would $10 be enough? $10? What's the usual charge? Hell, Mom, I don't know. It depends, but... I'll give you 20 And we'll go someplace where we can get a cup of coffee and get warm and talk. You pay for the coffee? Of course. Oh, what the hell? Good. <laughs> that was the scene. And I'm talking a little loud because I am used to uh, projecting from the stage. I didn't understand that you could just talk naturally. So that was my, wow, trial by fire. And at my side was Robin, who was my anchor and my, you know, oh God, he, he got me through it. Close says they came to rely on each other throughout the movie. And Williams had struggles of his own. Robin... Robin, at that time when we started GARP, was doing stuff. I think he was drinking quite a bit, <laughs> probably doing some other stuff as well. So he always wasn't um, in the greatest of, sh- of, of shape when we would, in the early morning when, he would, when we would start rehearsing. But man, he, he overcame that, you know. Um, he was fighting, he was fighting with some demons you know, back then. And she remembered this one time when she was asked to do him a favor. They asked me, the production, to accompany Robin to this press conference. We had already become friends, and I guess I was a calming influence on him. But he was very quiet before we went in. But as soon as the press conference started, he transformed. And the quiet, pensive man she had seen backstage launched into a high-energy improv performance for The Room. Then he did this turn, which was brilliant beyond words. A topical, human, outrageous, uh, quick. And then when we finished and we went out, he turned to me and said, was that okay? Do you think that was okay? And it floored me, you know, because, of course, he was had a deep insecurity, like most of us who walk along the edge. The world, according to Garp, got positive reviews, and it showed Williams had range. He was a gifted stand-up who could crack up the country on TV, but he could also do dramatic roles. And a few years later, he got to show he could do both in the same film. There actually had not been any film about Vietnam that had humor. Barry Levinson is the Oscar-winning director behind Good Morning Vietnam. He talked to us about the challenge of making a film with comedic moments set within the confusing clusterfuck of Vietnam. We weren't like making fun of the war. We're just talking about the circumstances of a radio DJ and his influence on the Vietnamese and on servicemen with some humor in the morning show. He cast Robin Williams as the lead character a radio DJ named Adrian Cronauer, who makes it clear from his first broadcast that he's not going to play by the rules. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, 
this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Da Nang me, Da Nang me. Why don't they get a rope and hang me? Hey. The movie interweaves its dramatic plot with a number of these over-the-top broadcasts from William's character. And Levinson says only someone like Williams could come up with them on the fly, even though he's improvising. He still had to adhere to certain constraints. He is hilarious, but he is acting uh, because he's he's responding to what's taking place in a scene. So it's not just some kind of free for all. Let's just have fun. We can't go suddenly sliding into Mork and Mindy. He's got to be working within Adrian Cronauer. That's the character that he's playing. It has to connect to that which has gone before it and that which will go after it. Levinson told us that William's unique talents were crucial at other points during the movie. His characters spent some time trying to teach English to Vietnamese locals. They actually shot the movie in Thailand and the actors were Thai, but there was still a language barrier. And filming the classroom scenes was not easy. It was uh, terrible in, in this respect. They couldn't do the lines well enough to believe it. So it all seemed kind of stilted and faked. I, I took a break and um, I'm walking around outside trying to figure what am I going to do? Because it just all seems so phony. It doesn't seem to have any spontaneity to it. He was racking his brain, walking around the set. And then he noticed Williams chit-chatting with all the Thai actors. They're talking and they're laughing, and he's laughing, and then all this is going on, and it's very, very alive. And all of a sudden, Levinson knew what he was going to do. I said, okay, let's go back to the set, and I pulled Robin aside. I said, Robin, what you're doing when you're trying to communicate them, that, that works. That's real. That's spontaneous. Their personalities are coming out. So Levinson told Williams his plan. He wanted Williams to hit the basic beats of the scene, but instead of sticking to the script... He wanted Williams to engage naturally with the cast, as if they were shooting the shit between takes. The scene would unfold organically, and instead of shouting action, Levinson would just give a hand signal to let Williams know they were filming. I indicated for the camera to start rolling, and it all just came alive. See, if you say the pace, some people in the car, some gypsies, they cut you off. All of a sudden, you let them go. With Good Morning Vietnam, Williams proved his mettle as a big-time box office star. But even as his film career took off, he never stopped doing stand-up. One of his famous shows was filmed at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. It was called An Evening at the Met with Robin Williams. He got more personal in this show. He opened up about his drug use and his family. His son, Zach Williams, told us about what it was like to have embarrassing stories from your childhood trotted out on stage. Well, th this one involves me using the F word as a young kid, um, often. I was driving in traffic, someone cut me off, I went, fuck it. From behind me, his little rocket seat, a voice went, fuck it. <laughs> All day long, he followed me around the house going, Sweet little old lady walked up and said, oh, what a beautiful child. Fuck you. <laughs> it's the Williams boy. In hindsight, I was totally fine with it when I learned about it. I was like, that's really funny. That, that is something that 
I would say. And it makes sense that you would use it in the material. So for me, I, I was I was tickled by it. Zach's younger sister, Zelda Williams, had a bit of a different reaction when it happened to her later on. He made a joke about me, like, getting older and growing boobs and that there were guys showing up like cats and he was, like, spraying them with a hose. And he said, I just want to lock her in a tower and then go and watch porn with her brothers. And I remember, <laughs> I remember being so mortified sitting in this audience. <laughs> um, but, you know, your parents embarrass kids uh, all over the world, as it turns out. Probably not as publicly, but that was my first experience of being, like, like shrinking into my seat because of it. <laughs> and I don't remember any of the other jokes that he told that night. So there is something to be said for being like, oh, that that stuck with me for the sheer mortification of it all. <laughs> there was a lot of William's stand-up material that was not appropriate for kids. But Zelda told us her dad kept families in mind when choosing certain projects. I do remember Aladdin being something that he wanted to do to have it be for kids and for his kids. Zelda was a toddler when the movie came out but she could tell there was something special about the genie. Excuse me? Are you looking at me? Did you rub my lamp? Did you wake me up? Did you bring me here? And all of a sudden, you're walking out on me? I don't think so. Not right now. You're getting your wishes, so sit down! I, I remember knowing it was Dad's voice quite quickly. But Genie sounded a lot like Dad. The other characters he did in the movie and whatnot, like the little the, the guy who runs the shop and stuff, um, weren't as close to Dad's voice, but Jeannie just sounded like Dad. That was kind of who he was. Even if Williams might have chosen to do Aladdin with kids in mind, they weren't the only ones who loved it. I would argue his greatest role is as the Genie in Aladdin. That's film critic Ty Burr. Because it's the one where he's finally cut off from his body. It's all just brain. It's all mind moving as fast as it can to just find the funniest ideas, um, do the funniest improvisations. It's really, that that role itself is kind of a miracle, I think. A miracle. His greatest role ever. That's really saying something. Because Williams would go on to win an Oscar for his performance in a different movie. Goodwill Hunting came out in 1997. It was written by then-Hollywood newcomers Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. They also starred in the movie. Williams played a supporting role serving as a mentor to a young Matt Damon. There's a lot of great emotion that audiences feel toward that movie for obvious reasons. It's the arrival of Matt and Ben. They wrote the screenplay. They won the Oscar for the screenplay. Um, and it's a feel-good story. And uh, Williams, is, his character is sort of in charge of the emotional temperature of that film, of guiding the Will Hunting character along my only quibble with a performance, and I say this as a lifelong Bostonian, is that it's, I'm not going to say it's the worst Boston accent in the history of the movies, but it's certainly not the best. My wife used to fart when she was nervous. She had all sorts of wonderful little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> you know, she used to fart in her sleep. <laughs> Sorry, I shared that with you. <laughs> One night it was so loud it woke the dog up. <laughs> She woke up and got like, oh, was that you? See, I didn't have the heart to tell her. <laughs> oh, God. She, she woke herself up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. Ah, but, Will, she's been dead two years, and that's the shit I remember. The 90s were a prolific time in William's career. Another hit movie from that decade was Mrs. Doubtfire, 
Williams played a recently divorced dad who wants to spend more time with his kids. So he pretends to be a sweet British nanny and gets a job working for his ex-wife. His biographer, Dave Itzkoff, told us the movie was more personal for Williams than many viewers may have realized. The moral of that story is about a family that kind of falls apart, reassembles itself in a new and unfamiliar configuration, but it's kind of telling you once you're part of a family, even if there's divorce or separation, that family is permanent and that never changes. And that's certainly something that Robin had experienced in his own life. Itzkoff says Williams grew up in a non-traditional family. After he found out about his half-siblings, they became very close and he came to see them as full brothers. As an adult, Williams' family was also non-traditional in its own way. He had one child with his first wife, Valerie, and by that point had two children also uh, with his second wife, Marcia. But he wanted those children to all live together and consider themselves to be siblings. And he succeeded in that, that Zach and Zelda and Cody uh, remained extremely close through their whole lives and really became a family unit unto themselves. And that's part of what that movie was trying to teach people. Robin Williams did so much throughout his career. Between all of his movies, TV appearances, and stand-up, it's impossible to sum it all up in one podcast. And as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Williams was an incredible entertainer. He strived to bring genuine joy and laughter and relief to so many people. But that wasn't just his persona as a performer. As many people who knew Williams told us, his impulse to help people feel better was sincere. And even in private, he often went out of his way to brighten people's days. Mara Wilson was five years old when she met Williams on the set of Mrs. Doubtfire. She played his youngest daughter, and she remembers how sweet he was with the kids on set. He would make us laugh. He, he loved having an audience, and I think kids are often the best audience. So he would take Mrs. Doubtfire's carpet bag and make it bark like a dog. He would make little hand puppets, similar to the kind that you actually see animated in Aladdin. I got to find out that that was a real thing that he did. He made little hand puppets that would talk and say, like, I don't like you. You smell like poop, and things like that, which is the height of hilarity when you're in kindergarten. He did take on a protective role, but he was very gentle and very kind with us, and it just felt real. It just felt like it was who he was. Part of that role was giving heartfelt advice to Wilson and Lisa Jacob and Matthew Lawrence, who played her older siblings. I remember him telling Matt over and over again, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. Actually, I don't remember that, but I remember Matt telling me that he always said that to him and was very strict with him about it, very parental in a way, saying don't do drugs because I think there was so much of his life that he regretted because of drugs, but I think the his authenticity came through. And Wilson says that even at five years old, she noticed how much he paid attention to the people around him. My sister was born while we were in pre-production for Doubtfire. And even when it's a wonderful thing, like a new baby being born, it, he understood that that can be a strange and surprising thing for a kid. He actually got me a little workbook almost, like a kind of like a coloring book, but a book that you could write in that was all about having a little sister or a, a new baby in your family. I mean, Mrs. Doubtfire is all about changing families. It's all about the changing shape of families. And we were making a movie about families changing, and he deeply understood what that meant to a child. I 
I think really the lasting thing is his kindness. He was somebody who gave a lot. And I think that that was something that we always really loved about him. Williams was deeply giving in other ways, too. Along with Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, he was one of the co-hosts behind Comic Relief, a series of TV specials that raised $80 million to help the homeless. He took repeated trips overseas to give performances to active duty U.S. soldiers. And he was a longtime supporter and public booster of St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. And William showed up for people in quieter ways, too. After his good friend Christopher Reeve was paralyzed in a horseback riding accident, Williams made sure he was one of the first people at his bedside. Reeve shared his memory of that moment during an interview with NBC News. I was hanging upside down, semi-conscious, you know, not eating, not drinking. And I turned to my side, and there is Robin Williams dressed as a doctor, wearing one of those funny blue scrub hats. And for the first time since I crashed, I laughed. As I always do, as we all always do with Robin. And I felt such joy seeing him, and he'd come all that way. And, you know, his seeing him and laughing and enjoying each other like the old days was one of the first indicators to me that life could be good again. Glenn Close knew them both well and told us William's support didn't stop there. Every single year after that, Robin would pay for a top chef to come in and on the anniversary of the accident and cook a meal for whoever it was that Chris and Dana wanted to invite. It was such an act of friendship and such an act of love. And I honestly think that Robin's presence and Robin's love got Chris through that, got Chris through the, the, the stage where he was thinking, I should just let it all go. As Close and so many others told us, there was nobody quite like Robin Williams. I wish he was still here. We need him. But thank goodness he was with us for as long as he was. During the last chapter of his life, Williams was diagnosed with what doctors thought was Parkinson's disease and later understood to be Lewy body dementia. It's a subtype of Parkinson's that causes significant cognitive decline. Williams died by suicide on August 11, 2014. He was 63 years old. His good friend Rick Overton told us about the moment he got the news. I just stopped the car in traffic. But what I was noticing was lots of people pulling over and just staring around me. And people looking at their phone and stopping walking. I don't know if it's all the same news, but I wonder. It was like the day the earth stood still. Everything screeched for a moment. Even after his death, Williams and his family continued to give through an organization called Bring Change to Mind, which was co-founded by Glenn Close. Pamela Harrington is the organization's executive director. So we've been 12 years in working to end the stigma and discrimination around mental illness. And uh, we're now primarily focused on high school students and making sure that we are starting as young as we possibly can and equipping young people with the tools that they need um, to live really healthy, 
good lives and set them up in a trajectory, you know, for success and for health for their lives. Two years after Robin's death, his son, Zach Williams, joined the organization's board. He has been an incredible advocate, watching the way he is now traveling the country, speaking about vulnerability and supports and how to better your wellness. Um, but he, he and his family um, allowed us to introduce the Robin Williams Legacy of Laughter Award, which we have bestowed each year for the last, this will be our sixth year. The award recognizes entertainers who have raised awareness about mental health issues, spread laughter, and help make the world a brighter and more caring place. Past recipients have included Whoopi Goldberg, Ben Stiller, and Eugene and Dan Levy. Our first award, Robin Williams Legacy of Laughter Award, went to Billy Crystal. He was so moved and so gracious as he was accepting his award. Crystal has worked with almost every funny person on the planet and he was one of William's closest friends. He ended his acceptance speech by paying his respects to William's exceptional ability to make us laugh. And I watched him get that out of people more than anybody I've ever seen with a joy that will never be matched by anybody else on stage for the just sheer joy and thrill of making people make a noise that they wouldn't make in any other way except by watching somebody be funny. And what drives that is something lurking underneath. And I think he understood that better than anybody else in the world. And so if I'm the first to receive this, I couldn't be more proud because if it says a legacy of laughter and um, it has his name on it, then I'm the luckiest guy who ever stepped on stage with him. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to The Hall. If you liked our show, you can give us a follow wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch The Hall special on Netflix. I'm Cristela Alonzo. The Hall is a production of Netflix Podcasts and Netflix is a Joke Radio. The show is produced by Radio Point, hosted by me, Cristela Alonzo. Executive producers are Gideon Evans, Alex Bach, Daniel Powell, Houston Snyder, and Sabrina Fonfetter. Directed by Gideon Evans. Written by Gideon Evans and David Fox. Produced by Taylor Kowalski and David Fox. Edited by David Fox. Scoring by Roddy Nickpour. Recorded by Kate Moldenhauer. Mixed by Kat Iosa. Talent booking and consulting by Cultivated Entertainment. Special thanks to Ron Howard, Glenn Close, Barry Levinson, Rick Overton, Jay Leno, Mara Wilson, Marina Zinovich, Ty Burr, Dave Itzkoff, Jay Alexander, The Sag Harbor Cinema, Julia Daniolo Villon, Jules Pfeiffer, Gail Bruzewitz, Pamela Harrington, and Zelda and Zach Williams. Sound services provided by Great City Post. <laughs> <laughs>